Welcome back to this week's episode of Not All at Once. Let's see. This week, Jordan and I talk about the market. We talk about what's going on with Luna and Terra and Doquan buying up a bunch of Bitcoin. And we end the episode talking a bit about the proof of work versus proof of stake debate that uh, apparently is never going away. <laughs> All right. Let's go. Hello. Good morning, Kendall. Good morning. We're back. Last last day of q1 2022 that's right yeah <laughs> i saw someone tweeted uh spooky john about that i guess i can't i shouldn't say his real name yeah <laughs> today on twitter so yeah it's been a uh it's been a wild quarter we're gonna we're gonna get into it <laughs> it's been crazy oh my gosh let me tell you something so um Coin Metrics drops uh, has a weekly newsletter called State of the Network, okay. um, and our research analysts basically just like pick a topic and do some research and then you know share their findings. And uh, they uh, they they release uh, quarterly reports as well, right? So at the end of every quarter, they 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 reflect on the entire quarter. And um, the research analysts shared like their their early draft this morning with the team. And I was reading over it. And one of the sections is about um, exploits and regulation. And it's been a wild quarter for exploits and regulation in the crypto space because mm. I'm going to break down the four that they list if I can remember them. First off, the DAO hacker was um, discovered or like um, became known this quarter, which I can talk about what that is in a second if we want, but that was a big thing. Remember the bit fi- or the the hackers from the like the from New York. The one was a the chick was a rapper. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember hearing about that. They like it was like a bit finex hack. They were they were caught. Um, then there was the Ronin hack, which we're going to talk about later, and then um, there was another. There was like a Solana a Solana wormhole hack. Anyway. Oh, and then on top of that, regulation-wise, Biden's executive order was this quarter. So it was a wild quarter with respect to like exploits slash regulation. Right. Yeah, and then and then I mean, one more to add to it is is probably crypto fud just surrounding are they staying are the exchanges staying in compliance with um, the sanctions? And oh, that that's whole, right. Yeah, that whole big conversation. That I guess we're still kind of going through because what was crazy was we literally cut off when we were just talking about it, but we cut off yesterday. It's a week ago. And then we talked later that day. And that was when um, the, uh, the chair of the energy committee or whatever over in Russia was like, I mean, he said it like nonchalantly, but said, we'll accept Bitcoin for oil in exchange for oil and gas. Um for our for our friendly nations now our unfriendly nations you have to pay us in rubles but yeah um so anyways there's a lot there's just a lot that has happened it's really 
it's really crazy. You know, we started these conversations and I feel like at the beginning, when we were first starting, starting off talking, we were kind of answering some questions and stuff about the basics, the fundamentals of all this. And now it's like, there's a ton of news every week to, to talk about. So yeah, things are, things move really quickly in the crypto space. It's like light speed. Right. And then, and then, you know, marry that along with just the overall economy and what we're going through right now and kind of what we're price staring down over the next 12 to 18 months. It's all, I think, uh, I think you said it at some point, if you're not paying attention, you really should be. And, you know, I think that that is kind of what this podcast is about, right? Helping people pay attention because obviously you can't be plugged into everything, especially if you're not spending so much time on Twitter like we are. So trying to give the highlights here and um, help people pay attention, I think is important. Yeah. Crypto has, crypto has like officially gone mainstream. Like it is, it is a mainstream phenomenon now. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I want to kick us off with a little bit of like a market update um, in terms yeah. of like where the, where the broader market is and what, what I see happening. Um, so as you said, literally the, the minute we got off last week's call, I was browsing Twitter, just checking, checking the latest on Twitter. And it was like, <clears throat> there was headlines, there was headlines, you know, Russia open to accepting Bitcoin for oil, um, which was, I was like, oh my gosh. Now they said it to your point. I said it kind of nonchalantly. It's kind of like, well, we can do that if you want, but it's not like the main thing. Um, so, but anyway, that, that was a big market development because it, it reinforces the larger macro picture, which we talked about two episodes ago, which is the whole like inside money versus outside money and basically fiat currencies versus commodity currencies. Um, and actually, if you see, if you check the latest price of ruble versus USD, so the ruble over the past, you know, month went through a, a massive cycle of it got massively devalued against USD. So it dropped like 30% against USD. And now over the past two week or two, it's fully retraced back to prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, um, so hmm. that's very interesting. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a market indicator that the market is seeing this whole commodity play as, as a, as a real, real value. Do you think that that has to do with the fact that Europe here very soon is, is not going to be able to sustain this pretty much where they're abstaining from getting their oil and gas from Russia and they're going to have to come crawling back here in short order. And so that, so people are pretty much saying, well, they're going to start trading again with Russia. Like, what are you pointing to as, as such a fast rebound, like what's the reason? Yeah, so markets are future looking. So markets, whenever you see the price of a market, it's really pricing in the future. So what it means is that, yes, Europe will have to bend the knee to Putin and keep buying his, his energy supply, as well as we haven't talked, I don't know at all, at all about this. I don't really, I haven't done a lot of research in this, but um, is equally important is, is food. Um, cause Ukraine and Russia are massive, like agricultural exporters as well as, um, 
Russia specifically is one of the largest exporters or they, they play some influential role in the supply chain of fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, do you listen to the all in podcast? I think I've heard it before, but I, I don't catch every episode. Yeah. It's an interesting podcast. They're a little animated at times, but they, they bring up good points. Um, they were talking a few weeks ago about how like the, in the coming 24 months, the world could see like massive famines, like huge famines. Like I'm talking like millions of people under famine. Um, so it's yeah. like, if you compare, if you just do a quick comparison, you know, Ukraine has 40 million people, 10 million refu- refu- refugees or no, sorry, 4 million refugees, 10% of their, of their population. So you have 4 million people that are displaced. That's a human that's a huge human rights issue. But if a year from now there's 50 million people under famine, that's, you know, a 10 X large human rights issue than even what's happening right now. Right. Cause even Ukraine is a large exporter of a lot of things that are, that are essential. And again, probably most of this is affecting Europe and Africa much more than it's affecting the United States. But those all those people who were working in factories or producing goods and services right before the invasion are not doing so anymore. Right. Even if they are still in, like, even if they haven't fled the country to become refugees, their, their life does not look like it used to with the production um, that they had prior. So, yeah, I, I mean, I texted you, was it this past weekend? I think it was this past weekend that I, that I texted you. I was like, Dude, I'm, I'm like going, I'm going all in on trying to stock away as much food as possible in an undisclosed location. So none of you try (laughs) to try to come after me for it, but yeah, I mean, Biden said it, I think while he was in, uh, while he was in Warsaw that we should expect pretty much laying the groundwork to expect some food shortages, which is, I mean, only 26 I've, I've never even, that's, that thought has never even crossed my mind. And I bet if I talked to my parents, they would probably have very similar, um, you know, sentiment about that. Who would have ever thought that we, in this day and age, we would even be discussing that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very serious situation. Um, but I'll say that again, markets are forward looking and there's a lot of reflexivity in markets. And so, um, you know, the, the, the one undeniable reality will be inflation because if there's shortages, prices have to go up, simple supply and demand economics, but that's a feature, not a bug because if, if, some, if prices go up, that means more, more, uh, farmers come to the market, they produce more supply, they, they capture the arbitrage that is available. So, um, you know, I mean, it's a very, very serious situation and it's not looking, it's not looking positive. However, um, you know, there's no reason to panic at least yet. Yeah. But it, it's, it's also a difficult, um, it, you know, it's, it doesn't take, it's not like it takes a, a week to spin up a farm, you know, like there's so much time that has to go into all of this stuff. And especially if you're trying to serve, um, you know, a community at scale, the land, the, 
you know, the, even if you don't have fertilizer, there's just so many of these like input pieces. And then just the passage of time, you can't speed that up necessarily. Um, well, not that I'm aware of. I'm just thinking about like normal traditional farming. Sure. Um, and yeah, so it's a, it's a delayed fuse. And so like we, 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 it won't really hit the market. That's why I say two years, it's going to be probably two years for this bumpy ride to be over, you know? Okay. Cause people think about it this way too. There's also uh, the whole futures market. So if the reason why futures market exists is for, um, I mean, one of the reasons is that, you know, so to your point, on one hand, it takes time to, to get these things moving, but on the other hand, there are entities that will stockpile. And so there's going to be warehouses full of supply that'll just sit there and wait for higher prices. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so there's a, there's a tremendous amount of reflexivity all across the system. So, so anyway, okay. So yeah, the whole commodities versus fiat is still an ongoing narrative, pay attention to it and it's going to continue to play out. Um, okay. The next thing in the market is the yield curve inversion. Okay. Yield curve. Wow. I don't want to spend too much time here because I just, I don't want to bore people, but yield curve inversion it, 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 it's a, it's a signal that comes from the credit markets. And so there's a, there's a huge credit market, you know, of banks lending money to, to, to borrowers. Um, and the yield curve inversion is basically a signal from the credit market, which says like, you know, tough waters ahead, <laughs> which basically yeah. anytime that the yield curve inverts within, I think it's like within eight months, there's a recession. Um, and so the yield curve inverted this past week, which means that most likely there is an incoming recession. And that, and all that that really means, uh, and, and there will be, uh, we'll post this, this article, um, by the guy who wrote the layered money book. What's his name? Nick, Nick Batia. Nick Batia. Yeah. Yeah, he has a really good, uh, article he released a couple of days ago, but essentially, and I read through this. Um, essentially it's just that you can get, um, normally you get a higher interest rate for longer term bonds, like a 30 year bond, you'd get a higher interest rate than if you took out a three year bond and essentially those have flipped, right. You can get a interest rate for a three year versus a 30 year. Yeah. So this is kind of interesting. This is the technicals of the matter. The way a yield curve inversion, what a yield curve inversion is is okay so so to your point like say you want to go take out a mortgage um and like they offer you a 15-year mortgage versus a 30-year mortgage the 15-year mortgage is going to have arbitrary numbers and interest rate of let's call it a three percent and but the then the the 30-year mortgage will have an interest rate of call 3.5 percent so um the so you have 15-year duration versus a 30-year duration um, the longer the duration, the higher the interest rate typically, because there's more uncertainty over time. You also need to take into account inflation. Um, although I guess inflation on a, on a nominal basis wouldn't actually impact. It's more about the uncertainty. The longer you go out, the more uncertain things are. Um, and so what a yield curve inversion is, is where the short-term duration outpaces the long-term duration. And so suddenly, you know, to continue the example, that 15-year mor- mortgage has an interest rate of 4%, but the 30-year mortgage has an interest rate of 
still 3.5%, right? So it's backwards. And basically what it mm. means is that it, it means that in the short term, in the, in the economy as a whole, there's a tremendous amount, a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Hmm. And uncertainty usually leads to recession. Yeah. Yeah. Short of like some miracle, it feels like we are definitely headed towards some session because housing prices are already so high and then interest rates going up. Like I, it was so funny when we sat down, I got an, I got a wall street journal um, breaking news thing that hit the average rate for a 30 year fixed mortgage jumped a quarter point to 4.67% its highest since 2018. And those are coming at a time where housing prices all over the country are already highly inflated. And so, you know, if you are like, take me, right. We're trying to buy a house later on this year. We're, we're potentially buying at the top of the market and, and the interest rates, you know, potentially going to be close to 5%, especially if we wait to the end of this year, which is probably what we'll do. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, if you think about it just logically, right, not not as many people are going to be able to afford that because that was always the only reason people could afford these larger home prices. Well, well, at least I'm getting a two and a half percent interest rate and locking that in for 30 years. So um, anyways, all I'd say, I just, I know yeah. everyone I talked to is like the housing market is not going to crash. I talked to so many realtors that are like, there's no way it will crash, blah, blah. But well, no, when you when you look under the hood, it's just it just seems like you're you've got assets that have gone up in value that there's really it's all because of the money printer. It's all because you put more money in people's hands and they're all competing for um, not as many houses. Right. Yeah. So they're willing. You, they're willing to go ahead. Yeah. Are you familiar? With, there's a huge housing bubble in Canada right now, too. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Yeah. And it's even, it's way worse than here. It's like, because Canada never actually really experienced a crash during the global financial crisis. And mm. so their housing bubble has basically just continued to grow since then. Wow. And, uh, and it's all to your point, really. It all comes down to the credit markets. Because so as interest rates raise, um, that actually, that causes housing prices to go down. There's no, that just, that's just the way it works. Right. Um, so I don't know who knows. I mean, housing is, is, um, surprisingly very robust. And I will say that like, um, like the thing that I look for in housing is what's the cost to, to build a new house. And, um, the reality, the reality of the situation is, um, Relative to the cost to produce housing, housing prices are still somewhat cheap, in my opinion. Um, that's why you don't see as much of um, new supply coming to the market because the builders, there's not a huge arbitrage for the builders to capture. So they're just like, you know, there's, there's just not as much capital that flows into it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah. So market updates so far we've had commodities versus fiat and we've also talked on touched on the yield curve inversion um which is just a, the bond market broadly is the important thing there third thing i want to cover is crypto prices so crypto prices are up so what's going on 
Why is <laughs> Jordan? Why are crypto prices up? Dude, every time that the crypto price goes up, specifically Bitcoin. Well, I'm uh, my what I was gonna say is I just don't. I always am like good, but you know I'm a long term holder, so I'm uh, I'm gonna ride these waves. But one thing I did see was was it Terra? Something about a Terra adding a bunch of Bitcoin to their bag. Um, I don't know if that plays any role in it. Um, I feel like more and more people are getting orange pilled, but I'm always skeptical to like take the person who's putting in like $50 a week as, you know, a big chunk of them moving the market. It feels much more like, you know, the Michael Saylors of the world, the Terras of the world who are um, putting a lot of money all in at one time. It's potentially, I mean, how I did. Okay. So I was sitting with my dad on Sunday and we are actually, he asked me this question. He was like, so why? Cause I told him, I was like, yeah, Bitcoin's way, you know, it was up like 10%, I think, or the past week. He's like, so why is that? And I was like, well, think about it, like, we're sitting at this bar, we're watching the NCAA games. Think about it if they, if they pretty much announced over the intercom at the bar, like, hey, we've only got one um, keg of beer left, but everyone at the bar wants to drink, right? Like, what's the price of a 16 ounce beer now? Versus if they come in and they say, we've got a hundred, they just delivered like, way too much beer. We've got a hundred kegs of beer and everyone in the, in the bar is, uh, is like an AA member or, you know, or they're, they're not drinking, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's the price of the beer? You can get it for like pennies. Right. And that, so all that to say, my answer to him was it's all supply and demand. Right. But then there's all these things about the market that you can't necessarily know, or maybe it's hard to know if you're just like, a normal person that doesn't have insider information. So all I'd say, I'm assuming that there was more demand than there was supply. <laughs> <Yeah>. Long, <laughs> long way of saying that. That's but, the right um, answer. I like that answer. <laughs> so, but yeah, to help us uh, understand more. What were you seeing? Oh, well, who knows? To your point, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the way I, I kind of view it the same way, it's like, First off, it doesn't affect me at all because I have no interest in trading the the assets. I'm just a a long term investor. Yeah. Um, but the way I see it is like there's an underlying supply and demand uh, dynamic, which is what you're touching on, and then like on top on top of that is a layer of speculators, right? And the like the magnitude of the volatility is equivalent to the magnitude of the speculators. And so like if you have a hundred people in the, in the game and 50 of them are like us, which are long-term investors, and then 50 of them are speculators, then, you know, nice round numbers. Let's say you can have a volatility of a 50% volatility, which means it could crash 50% or go up you know, 50% or hundred percent, no 50%. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The, the point I'm trying to make is that the, the volatility is equivalent to the number of speculators. And mm -hmm. so as the mark, as market caps mature, as they get bigger, the number, like the, the portion of participants that are speculators uh, goes down. So the speculators get crowded out by just normal people. Yeah. Um, 
And so, so yeah, I think, I mean, to, so like, if you look at crypto, so yeah, it's up roughly 10% over the past week, which is a lot. Um, but, uh, so that, that probably means that, you know, like I equate most of that to, like, I would say, you know, we'll, we'll call it 8% of the 10%. So 80% of the gains were probably fueled by speculators. Right. And so these, whenever, you know, I, I, I have no ability to determine what the speculators are going to do. So I can't give you a good answer on how they behave. Yeah. Um, but there, but there was a real marginal 2% gain, let's call it 20% marginal gain, which is like real growth in my opinion. And, um, yeah, who knows? I mean, it's fueled by two things in my opinion right now. It's, um, it's the whole commodity money versus fiat money debate, which we talked about, um, specifically what's going on in Ukraine. Ukraine is huge for crypto. I mean, I don't mean like the the event is big for the for the crypto narrative i mean that the country of ukraine is like the largest user of crypto in the whole world coincidentally which yeah. should make you you know scratch your head and ask you know hmm, that's very interesting um and then the other narrative which is the bigger narrative which causes more volatility is the whole terra doquan uh so the Luna Foundation is buying a bunch of Bitcoin and using it to to peg their their Terra stablecoin. It's a, it's similar to what went on with Michael Saylor, right? You have a big whale that has to publicly disclose that they're doing this, and then everybody's like, "Oh man, supply is getting scooped off the market. Let's all mm-hmm. speculate," <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, so yeah. What yeah. do you want to? Are you curious about anything with the Doquan stuff? I have I have done I, a little I'm, bit of research. I am. I'm always interested because I saw something on Twitter too that that was um, saying that it was a risk to long-term holders of Bitcoin for whatever they were doing, but I didn't dig in a, a ton to understand why. I mean, my my basic understanding would be the more centralized um, supply is, um, you know, it's just a heavier risk, whereas if they or if sailor one day just decided to dump all of his bitcoin obviously that that creates large issues for long term holders but other than that i don't know the details of it all right let's go on a detour let's let's explore this this is kind of interesting yeah all right so i don't know everything i'm not an expert here but um, i'm i'm actually just not an expert in like specifically Luna and Terra, I understand what they're doing. And so I'm going to comment mostly on just the strategy. Um, so, okay. What Terra is, Terra is a stable coin similar to Tether or USDC. Um, but what's unique about Terra is that it has no fiat backing, which means, so for example, if let's say I'm a big institution and I want to get in the crypto space, what I'll probably do is go to Circle and say, hey, I'm gonna deposit $100 million in fiat, and I want you to issue 100 million USDC to me. So now that institution has 100 million USDC that, that they can then use in the crypto space to, to send things around. Um, <clears throat> but with Terra, 
there is no fiat backing. So it's not like you go to Terra and you're like, here's my dollars, I want Terra. Instead, what they have is uh, what's called Luna. And Luna is um, not a stable coin. It's just a cryptocurrency, just like any, any other layer one cryptocurrency. And, but so it's volatile, right? But it's, it's intent, its purpose, its goal is to stabilize Terra. And so um, if you remember, Jordan, I've actually told you a little bit about what's called seniorage shares. And so with, with seniorage shares, the idea is you have, it's, it's a way to um, create stability. On one side of the trade, you have the stable unit. And then on the other side of the, of the uh, trade, you have essentially like an equity value. And the equity value is an agreement for future growth of the stable coin. Um, and so, okay, so that's what, I don't really know much more about Terra and Luna other than they're what they are. Right. Um, yeah. I don't really understand like who's using them or why, or how are they implemented? How decentralized are they? I don't really know. I do yeah. know that you can't buy Luna on Coinbase. I know that. <laughs> okay. Uh, cause as a side note, I do think that the three most interesting altcoins right now to keep an eye on are. Luna, Solana, and Avalanche. Um, and you can buy two out of the three of those on Coinbase, but you can't buy Luna. Um, okay, so, all right. So anyway, so the way that the stable coin, I should say this, like stable coins are a massive value to the cryptocurrency space. They're huge. Like there's two narratives in the cryptocurrency movement thus far. The first is Bitcoin. The second is stable coins. And so the concept of having a stable coin that is purely crypto native, not integrated with fiat whatsoever, is a massive deal. It's a huge deal because you can grow the circular economy hmm. um, permissionlessly, right? You don't have to, you don't have to integrate with the traditional finance system. And is it um, more used for like the only thing I would see a use for stablecoin is like if I wanted to go spend it, right? And and not experience like all right, if I went and bought something for a hundred thousand sats, and then five minutes later it plummets or it goes way up in value, and all of a sudden I spent way way more on that product or service or way less because of just how volatile it is. Is that the main? Um, is that the main benefit of, of holding any stable coins or is there other benefits? Yeah. So there's two reasons to use, to have stable coins. First off, just the general concept before I go into the two, the two things, the general concept of a stable unit in an economy is proven to be something that the market demands. And this is what Bitcoiners don't understand. In my opinion, a lot of them don't is that a stable value is is a net positive to the to the economy and bitcoin will never be a stable value and that's by design and that's not a bad thing that's again that's by design um so anyway the, the point is is that stable values are, are a good thing um the two primary use cases for stable coins are are first off for um people under repressed or oppressed regimes across the world to get basically dollars so if you live in um, Venezuela and you want to protect your, your wealth, 
um, but you don't want the exposure to Bitcoin's volatility, then you try to get your hands on some Tether probably. That's, that's what you do. As a quick side note, um, there was a really interesting develop, development last fall, or I think it was last fall, where in Myanmar, there was a coup, a government coup that overthrew the government and um, the new government decided to change their, their currency to the Chinese Yuan. And the new like uh, rebellious coup, which was the previous government, right? So they got overthrown, then they become the rebels. They actually chose Tether as their currency, which mm. is very, very, very interesting. Um, so this first use case you can think of, basically it's a way for dollars to proliferate around the world. Um, Okay, the second use case of stable coins in the crypto space is for, um, how do I put this? Like, it's like a financial instrument. Um, now, so this is more for traders, institutions, people, um, financial analysts that are looking for yield. Um, stable coins are very useful because they can, they can add liquidity to markets um, and basically help markets function it's like you can think of it just plumbing like it's it's required for the system to work you need liquidity so that's why you'll see like ftx offers a 10 percent apr on i think they do something like that i don't know exactly yeah yeah um yeah so that's the other the other use case for stable coins makes sense yeah you basically stabilize your value but you also earn a yield okay now yeah Okay. No, I've been hearing a lot more about stable coins. I don't hold, I don't think I hold any stable coins. I've had to go into stable, stable coins to get some cryptocurrencies, but then I normally, whatever's left over, I normally just bring it back into Ethereum or Bitcoin. So I wasn't exactly sure, especially with us, we're spoiled over here in the United States, right? Like there's, we're not really in fear of um, what you're talking about with oppression and, um, and we already have the dollar. Um, so I think yeah. it's hard for people in our shoes to really wrap their heads around some of these like use cases just because it's something that right now we don't experience and hopefully we won't we won't ever experience. Yeah, we're the minority, really. We're the minority. Yeah. There's way more people that don't have our luxuries. Um, okay, so so Tara or what so what so again, with this whole Luna Terra thing, the the Luna token or the Luna currency exists to stabilize Terra, and basically, what Do Kwan and the Luna folks are doing is they're buying up a bunch of Bitcoin to also help stabilize Terra. So you have to have, in order to have like a stable unit, you need to have some sort of backing, and the backing needs to be. Um, able to stabilize, I'll say, it. I'll put it that way. Um, and so the idea is that you're basically building a stable coin on Bitcoin, which is very interesting. And furthermore, what you can actually do, I think this is, I think this is possible. Let's say you are a user, a Terra user, and you want to send some money, some money to somebody for some reason, you can actually send them Terra and it'll actually go, it can deposit to them in Bitcoin, right? So you can actually send the transaction over the Bitcoin network. Hmm. Very, interesting. very interesting. Yeah. 
I mean, are there any, are there any um, similarities to draw between this and the, the uh, kind of more analog version of gold backing paper money? Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Um, so like it used to be that you would deposit your gold at a bank. The bank would basically serve as the custodian, which would secure the gold. Then they would issue banknotes, fiat, or not fiat, I should say, um, just uh, paper money, paper claims, really. And you can go back to the bank and redeem your paper claims for the gold. Um, so it's a similar, it's a similar concept, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but the, but normally you would just transact with people in the paper, and the bank is kind of the bank, and in, in this um, scenario, the Luna Foundation is kind of they're betting that not that many people are going to be coming back to ask for their Bitcoin backing. Yeah, it gets a little technical, but I'll, I'll let me see if I can try to explain it this way. What it really is, is a levered play. It's a levered bet on Bitcoin. And so mm-hmm. if the price of Bitcoin goes up by a lot, then the outstanding liabilities that the Luna Foundation has in the form of Terra tokens um, decreases massively against the overall Bitcoin share. And so, um, so, so that's... It's not necessarily the idea, but it is a, it is an, an outcome of the of this of the system. See, the inverse is true as well, which is if Bitcoin drops substantially, then um, the outstanding liabilities are much larger relative to the Bitcoin reserves, and so you could have a bank run scenario. But realistically, like, see, the thing is, people get caught up in the theory. And you have people arguing on one side or over the other on a theory. And um, the truth is like, there's a pragmatic middle ground that just ends up happening. And there's still a lot of risk on one side or the other, but um, basically this is how fiat currencies work. Like the only way, like it's almost like to build a fiat currency, first you have to have a hard currency. Then you have to have people like use the hard currency then you have to have people that are like, actually, this hard currency is good, but it's more of like a store of value. So what I really want is like a medium of exchange. And so then yeah. you're like, okay, well, how do we use the hard currency to build, you know, the medium of exchange? It's almost like a natural progression. It's very interesting. Yeah. 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 It's put, it's pushed me down this rabbit hole of the lightning network. Um, the past, this past probably two or three weeks trying to understand the problem is I don't transact very much right now um, with Bitcoin, but it does seem like a really amazing solution, at least for Bitcoiners. Like I know there's so many other people who are like in the crypto space, but for people who want to see the Bitcoin network grow, but also understand like the physical limits of the one, one megabyte per block thing mm-hmm. where you can only... You can only shove so much throughput um, into the network and it will never scale to a visa level um, volume. Doing all this, doing all these, tra- these smaller transactions on a lightning network. Um, it seems like it has a lot of potential to essentially do what you just said, where we've got the, we've got our store value piece and then we use the lightning network 
as the actual medium of exchange piece. And then those transactions are batch settled uh, maybe once a day or once a hour or something like that. So yes, trying, yes, to, he, trying to dig much more into that, but it's, it's hard when you don't have very many people, one, you don't want to spend your Bitcoin. And then two, you don't, you don't have many vendors that are even taking Bitcoin if you wanted to. Yeah. See, what's this, what's the word I'm looking for? Like there's this, um, it's like a paradox or it's like, a there's an inherent challenge, which is that in order to build the best infrastructure, you have to have a, a volatile asset. And so in order to build the lightning network in what Bitcoin is, you have to have an asset that is volatile, but then it's like, oh shoot. But in order for people to really use this thing, like it needs to be stabilized. And so then it's like, well, but if I stabilize, if I started by stabilizing it first, then I will never be able to build the infrastructure that's needed. And so you have this, like, mm -hmm. it's almost like a, it's a chicken and egg problem. That's the word I'm looking for. That's yeah. And so like, which comes first. Right. And um, again, I think I'll reiterate, it's like people get hung up in the theory, but I think the, this pragmatic approach, which is that like, um, well, we have the Bitcoin and like, okay, well now we kind of have Terra. Like, what if we just kind of mix those things together? Um, again, like over the lighting network too. Yeah. Okay. Have you been, have you been reading layered money? No. Okay. It sounds like it sounded like you, you had been. Okay. You should read that no, book. I, that's, that's a good book. Yeah. I've heard a lot of, um, maybe I'll put that on my audible wish list because I've heard a lot of people recommend that book. By the way, just so everyone knows, Kendall and I are what we are like, we're less than a week now out from going to the Bitcoin conference 2022 in Miami. Largest, yeah. largest uh, gathering of Bitcoiners in history. I've heard the number is 35,000 people coming down. It is going to be an absolute, um, it's going to be a mess down in Miami. <laughs> I mean, I, I, shared, I shared some videos with you of what's going on down there already with spring breakers and then you add in the bitcoiners oh man i hope the Bitcoin i just hope we make it out alive <laughs> yeah let's all let's all behave ourselves please i don't want any no issues. doubt <laughs> yeah i'm excited for i mean just quick tangent we're gonna meet so many fun people down there uh it's gonna be it's gonna be very good so yeah if anybody we will definitely give an update yeah oh yeah actually i guess are we gonna record next week what are we gonna do next week I don't know. We'll figure something out. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I can. I have a little like I have a little mini microphone. We've never recorded in person, so I've, I don't I'm not sure exactly how that works. Um, but anyways, yeah, I'd be down to record in the morning on Thursday because we'll I think that actually might be the first. Maybe the first day for it's us. The first day. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll figure something out. We might we might take the week off. I don't know. We'll we'll see if it if something works. Also, if anybody's down there, let us know because that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Cool. Okay. So, what else we want to talk about here, Jordan? Anything? Uh, interesting? I think one other piece that would be interesting to touch on is this whole this whole Ripple campaign to convert Bitcoin to proof of stake. Um, I dug into an or to a podcast just kind of talking about the proof of stake piece. And I even tweeted out something. Um, I think we should just kind of address it. Are there any risks that Bitcoin could potentially go to proof of stake? I think the answer is no. 
but also kind of we can touch on why why going to proof of stake would be not a good idea for for bitcoin Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay right so this is all over twitter this week for for those who don't let me update the news first Mm -hmm. so uh ripple is a company that um that's a number of things. One of the things they do is they are basically like the company that operates the XRP cryptocurrency, which to date is still one of the largest, surprisingly. Um, and oh, it's, it's actually one of the oldest. That's the reason. It's like it's actually older than Ethereum, believe it or not. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the this I don't know what he is like the founder or the CEO or whatever. Um of ripple came out with like a anti proof of work campaign. He was going to don't, he basically like donate 5 million to Greenpeace and Greenpeace goes out there and says, you know, uh, Bitcoin's using too much energy. And well, probably what's really, what's really going on is like this, I think his name's Chris Larson. I think Chris Larson's donating 5 million beef probably for tax reasons. And he's also, and at the same time, he's thinking to himself, Oh, and if I can get people to doubt Bitcoin, they'll buy more XRP. And, uh, Oh, and also coincidentally, Uh, Ripple is in a massive lawsuit with SEC over basically Ripple is a security (laughs) and they're unregistered and this SEC is trying to trying to you know go after them. Um, It's all shit show, really, and uh, that's my honest that's my honest take. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, remember when we told you that they would start to come after Bitcoin for the energy fud harder and harder? I mean, I think this is still just the beginning of it. Um, but I loved Nick Carter's tweet that was essentially like they paid those millions of dollars to a PR for, firm to make up all this, you know, pretty much push all this unsubstantiated science about Bitcoin making the uh, planet rise quicker, the temperature rise quicker. He's like, you could have paid me zero dollars to completely debunk it and you would have saved the money, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. See, here's a problem. Here's the shtick I have with crypto broadly. Okay. Bitcoin is the king of crypto. Okay. Hands down. Okay. I'm not like making, this is not an opinion. This is an objective reality. Now, if, if, if other, if all coins attack Bitcoin, they don't realize it, but they're attacking themselves because Bitcoin leads the charge. Okay. And so, um, now you know, the, the other side of the, of the argument is also true, which is like the Bitcoin maxis are like, you know, not great. And so, and so it's like, it's so people get just, people just get upset at each other and they start talking past each other. But listen, we all pay our rents to Bitcoin. Okay. Do not attack Bitcoin. You're attacking yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the energy stuff? Or is that, is like, well, I want to just make one point on proof of stake that I learned that, um, that I think might be helpful. And that is, Part of the beauty of the Bitcoin network is how cheap it still is for normal everyday people to run their own Bitcoin node and to co- have a complete copy of the of all the transactions. It's still less than one terabyte. Like I think right now, my uh, my Bitcoin node is is like right over 500 gigabytes that are taken up to hold the entire network, something like that, and. And the, all the, I mean, it's a little bit more inflated the price of all this hardware to get this up and running for Bitcoin. 
node, but it's still pretty cheap. You know, you're talking about like 200, $250 all in. Whereas on the proof of state, on the proof of stake network, my understanding is it's a lot more difficult and a lot more costly from a hardware standpoint, but also like a storage, a memory storage standpoint to house all of the, um, all the same data for say the Ethereum network um, as they start to try to go to a proof of stake. So, well, and that just makes, well, the distinction doesn't that make it where it's, there's not as many, not as many people can have a node and then it just ends up being where, especially go out, go out like 10 years, right. Where there's so much more um, data. data. Yeah. And then if you've only got a certain number of nodes for these really massive companies, right. It just, it just, um, presents a, a very centralized kind of like scenario. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin piece, like I just, the main point was like, there's more people who can run a node. It's way more accessible. Therefore it's going to every new person that adds a Bitcoin node secures the network that much more. Well, so it's not a matter of, that's not a matter of proof of stake versus proof of work though. Okay. You are, you are describing something which is vitally important, which is like the, it's like measuring decentralization and the most important thing to be decentralized is to, to limit the cost of running a full node. Um, and basically in my opinion, there's two tiers of decentralization. There's tier one, which is basically just Bitcoin. And then there's tier two, which is everything else. And the other tier two is like not accessible to the average person to secure the network, but it's accessible to developers and it's it's accessible to companies. And so like pragmatically, it'll probably never be a problem. Um, But proof of stake versus proof of work. The thing is it's, it's a, it's a matter of, it's a difference of security. And so the way proof of stake works is rather than using energy to, um, to write blocks in the ledger, you are using your existing stake. Uh, and so if you have, you know, arbitrary numbers, hundred dollars in ETH, you basically can take that ETH and deploy it in the network and use that ETH to secure the network versus with Bitcoin in order to secure the network or sorry, with proof of work in order to secure the network, you, you have to literally buy energy. So it's not like you're deploying your Bitcoin to, to secure the network. It's the energy that's securing the network. So it's a difference of security. Um, and so to put that into, into perspective, okay, let me go to coinmarketcap.com, coinmarketcap.com. Let's see, what's the market cap of Solana? <clears throat> Solana is a proof of stake network. Current market cap is about $40 billion, $40 billion. Okay, so if I had a billion dollars, I could probably totally destroy the Solana network right now. Just like I could do it instantaneously almost, right? I would buy a billion in Solana and then I would use that billion to attack the network because I have a substantial stake in the network. Now, of course, it would be a fool's errand because then my billion dollars would go to zero, but maybe I have, you know, 10 billion in Avalanche and I want Avalanche to succeed. Um, 
And so the point is, is that uh, I could, you can attack the network uh, purely through financial uh, uh, liquidity. And um, it's a difference, it's a, it's a different political structure. And so the political structure of proof of work is that the, the node operators um, really are, are the sovereigns. They're the ones who, you know, if a miner creates a block and they, uh, they did it nefariously, then the node operators can deny that block and just be like, no, like you basically, you wasted all the energy and we're just going to rob you of that. No, thanks. Whereas with um, proof of stake, um, it conflates both a node operator and a miner become like the same thing. And so um, you, you're, you're, you're holding in the, in the asset also can be deployed operationally to, to the network. And so it's, it's like a, it's sort of, you can think of like a, uh, what is like a conflict of interest? Yeah. Like you have a conflict of interest. Um, and so, yeah, here's it's almost like, it's almost like really quick. It's almost like if, you know, whatever Elon pays in tax taxes this year, right. It would almost be like for every dollar in taxes that you pay, that's a vote that you get for the overall policy of the United States government. Is that a good way to? Yeah, like, correct. Yeah. So okay. instead of one person, one vote, it's one dollar, one vote. And so if you have more dollars, you're, you're, you have more power. Um, now here's the thing, like it's not exclusively one or the other is better. Like it just depends on the use case. Um, now like, Hmm. It's a difficult, difficult subject. Here's the thing. Okay. It's basic. Okay. It's, there's, there's two, there's two steps that, to understanding why proof, why Bitcoin needs to be proof of work. The rest of them, I don't really care, frankly, go do proof of stake. It's fine. Um, frankly, it's more money for Bitcoin. So whatever, uh, uh, which, you know, maybe we kind of need in the, in the cryptocurrency space again, because Bitcoin, we all pay our rents to Bitcoin. Okay. Um, but okay, so there's there's two things here. Like, um, I lost my train of thought. You're um, good. Proof of work, Bitcoin. Uh, oh right. Right, 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 okay. So here's the thing. Two things. Okay, I remembered. We may cut that out. I don't know. Or maybe we'll just leave it in. <laughs> There's two things. Um, it's, it's inherently more secure to have proof of work. That's uh, theoretically true. It's theoretically true that it's more secure to have proof of work. Okay. Now, it's also true that having an ability to monetize energy is a benefit to society. That is also true. And so you have this amazing... Um, confluence of, of of two things coming together that it's just a perfect storm, and so you have the perfect inner uh, security system coupled with all the benefits of monetizing energy, um, and so um, like it just makes no sense that that's going away because that's that's just an optimal outcome. Um, I, I want to go into like monetizing energy, but I don't want to just like 
totally go too far here, but the idea like, okay, it's a three, three, three step thing. Okay. Energy grids are very, very complex and difficult to stabilize. Um, I don't know. I think I talked about this last time. It's like, whenever you draw energy through your power outlet, it's not like you're drawing some stored energy from some battery somewhere. It's like, you're literally drawing directly from the generator. And so everything is live. Okay. It's not like you have like load balanced mechanisms. You can load balance. There's like, there's ways to do it, but it's not like, it's very difficult to do. Number one. Yeah. Number, t- number two, renewables, renewable energies for all the good they do. They're also cheaper. I'll say that. Um, are, make the grid stability, stabil, stabilization worse. Like, think about it this way. How naive are some people that they think that the reason why the world isn't massively pivoted to renewables is because some political reason that oil is, you know, they have all the money. No, no, no. This is a physical problem. Okay. This is a technical problem. Um, like clearly the narrative and all the money is in renewables and yet it still doesn't proliferate. Why? Because number two, it makes his grid, it makes grid stabilization worse. It's worse for the grid. Okay. So now we're like, okay, well, we want this renewable thing, but it makes stabilization worse. How can we stabilize the grid? Okay. Bitcoin, Bitcoin fixes this people. Now, (laughs) hot take. Yeah. Right. More specifically, (laughs) more specifically proof of work fixes this, right? Because it's a way to take energy and monetize it. So you can convert energy to money directly. And in order to stabilize grids, you have to have a buyer of last resort. You basically have to have a, a, a an entity that it can always buy energy. And so, cause then just naively, what you do is you just, you, you produce over a hundred percent of the, of the demand and any sort of excess just goes to the, to the, to the buyer of last resort. Right. So yeah, it's like a perfect, uh, it's a perfect thing. It's what society needs. Yeah. I just was listening uh, to a podcast yesterday and today um, it was on, it was on the, uh, on the brink podcast and they were talking about mining and I guess they're, they're a uh, publicly traded Bitcoin mining rig, but they were talking about using hydropower and uh, to your point, pretty much like when their excess power, they were just using that. And then there was some kind of like communication network of like, if there was, if there was uh, an imbalance where say just the people in their homes, they needed more power. And then there would be some message sent over where then the Bitcoin mining would lower their usage somehow. And I'm dumbing this down quite a bit, but then once it, you know, once it, got to a point where everyone had the power they needed and this is all happening like instantaneously it's not like that's that's the key lights. that's the key yeah. thing it happens instantly like yeah it's not like people are like oh man my my computer turned off for 10 minutes but then the bitcoin thing turned off so now i have my computer back on like it yeah. all happens like instantaneously and then right when there's excess again then that just goes right back over to the bitcoin mining rig to keep mining new bitcoins right and this is a basic understanding Correct. This isn't new. Like the idea of having a buyer of last resort on the energy grid is not new. So uh, a lot of in the, uh, like industrial steel mills, aluminum, um, there, there's a lot of industrial uh, use cases where they basically get like really, really cheap energy because they agree to be a buyer of last resort for the, for the energy grid. 
And so this is a, this is already exists, but the thing is what those Bitcoin is like the digital version of that. And so you get all these, like, whereas like the, you know, to, to spin down a steel mill, <laughs> can you do that in a, in a minute, like in a second, in a moment? No, no, no. That takes hours. Okay. It takes <laughs> hours to do worse yet is nuclear. Nuclear takes like 12 hours to spin up and down or something like that. Um, whereas with a Bitcoin miner in the way that just the Bitcoin proof of work algorithm works, you can do it instantaneously. Now you tell me which is, which is more efficient. Okay. Like, um, right. this is, this is the digital age people. That's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And this guy was talking about, um, he was also talking about them pretty much going to places that used to have a very large, um, you know, industry presence, whether it was, you know, picture like a car manufacturing plant where like a Detroit, I don't know if they're in Detroit, but something where there used to be a lot of energy output and need in that area for a big, um, you know, operation like that. And now it's gone. They just come in and they would set up a whole large Bitcoin mining rig and they're adding, you know, they're adding jobs to that area. They're adding tax revenue to that area. Whereas, you know, in the time between those operations going wherever they went, pretty much a lot of those communities died, not like physically died, but, you know, they're, they became poor. There wasn't yeah. as many jobs, those kinds of things. So you can put these Bitcoin mining rigs into locations like that, pretty much start to 20 years ago and then it's this back and forth where the bitcoin mining rig uses the excess when there is excess and when there's not it balances out to allow people to use what they need and it's it's crazy because it's so against that that reality what they were talking about is like the reality on the ground is so different than like what you read about in the new yes. york times and in right. like all these yeah and trying to cut through that narrative is going to be extremely difficult um, especially because all the stuff is extremely technical and complicated in a lot of ways. Um, especially when anyways. you have Chris Larson spending, you know, 5 million for, for a tax break and also trying to, trying to get like in good graces with, uh, with the ESG regulators or whatever, or some bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. We're going to have to just keep, we're going to have to just keep talking about it. And I know Nick, Nick, uh, we'll keep talking about it. I'm excited to listen to that um, podcast he put out with the Ukrainian um, exchange, the largest Ukrainian exchange interview. Is that a recent one or is that one that's been up? I saw it was like in his archives. I saw you uh, uh, reply to it. I don't know. Either, don't way. Know was, yeah. Either way, his comment was essentially like, I don't want to hear that Bitcoin is bad um, from any other American after this. Like, I'm assuming that, you know, Bitcoin was is just a, a huge help for people in Ukraine at this time. So I'm excited to listen to that. But yeah, I think there's just competing narratives at this time. And, um, and I think it's only going to get, it's only going to get a little bit spicier out there. So we just got to continue to take down lies with, with truth. And, um, you know, people have been doing that for years, and for, be, for be, centuries. Be graceful about it too. Right. For sure. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I say we end it there. We didn't talk about the Ronin hack, but you know, whatever. We can talk about that later. <laughs> There's so yeah. much stuff to talk about, you know. Yeah, for, and we didn't get to uh, Cynthia Lumen or Loomis, and then also um, 
Kristen Gillibrand or Gillibrand. That is, we'll talk about that next time because that is also, I mean, there's not a ton to talk about just so everyone knows because the bill has not actually been released, but stay tuned for that because pretty much bipartisan, all the short story is bipartisan um, bill in the making about crypto regulation, which is really big and goes to the point that we made maybe last show that is not a right or left issue. We're going to find common ground across the, the aisle with all this. So it's great. All right. Until next cool. time. See you guys. See you down in Miami. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>